Hello, I'm Peter Goodwin with more audio news from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where a meeting of experts recently took place to discuss the health threat posed by obesity all over the world. There were two main speakers, Philip James, who directs the International Obesity Task Force, and who's written guidelines on tackling obesity for the World Health Organization and for the British government, and Derek Yach, who until recently worked for the WHO, but who now heads up the PepsiCo company's new policy on global health and wellness. Philip James presented frightening data about a massive, looming health problem. And when Sarah Maxwell met up with him, she asked him who was to blame and why the threat was greatest in the developing world and among the young. What were the facts and figures? That one in ten children in the world now are overweight or obese and that the new evidence is that that predicts their early death and the development of uh, heart disease and so on. This is clear new evidence that's now emerging. It's also been clearly shown that if you start with small babies who don't grow particularly well until, say, the age of two, and thereafter they grow quite rapidly, they have a massive handicap. And that is exactly what we're seeing in many parts of the world. They have a far greater risk of developing diabetes, for example. So that we now know that the World Centers for Diabetes are the Middle East, India, Pakistan and Japan and Thailand and other countries are coming up extremely rapidly where you actually have a fifth of all adults in some countries already with pre-existing diabetes that is the outcome of this catastrophic development. And what's interesting there is you didn't mention the Americas. Um, I think stereotypically when we think about obesity and these um, related illnesses, the first country that's going to come to mind is America. Yes, the Middle East women are fatter than the Americans and the Mexicans are actually catching up very rapidly with the US. And in Mexico we've shown with the Mexican government that they are far more handicapped by this weight gain than in the US because they of course have had a long um, history of malnutrition in childhood. Of course there's the typical culprits, smoking, poor diet, exercise, um, but what did you detail these changes to mainly that we're seeing? What we're finding is the nutrition transition, as it's called, uh, means that the fat, sugar and salt intake has been escalating in developing countries and that is driven by westernisation of their whole food culture. So what do you mean by that, though, westernisation of food culture? International food companies see the development of the third world market as the biggest opportunity for increasing their profits. So this is their highest priority. What do you mean by westernisation of of food? The westernisation of the food systems are being driven by a cultural perception which is actually dominating the media, whereby the American and Western culture is associated with wealth and happiness. And actually, automatically, on all the films and everywhere else, one sees Western foods as fundamentally linked. This is an enormously pervasive thing. Superimposed upon that, most of the big transnational food companies have identified the third world as their biggest next profit. And they are trying desperately to get into the third world, to take over the food systems. And in practice, they apply Western, American and British criteria 
to what they sell. I mean, why bother to reformulate if you can persuade everybody to eat British and American-style foods? So the fast food uh, companies of the world have products with just as bad a nutrient content, and these people who were not exposed to this at all suddenly are have this everywhere and it, the prices are manipulated so that they get engaged and they are therefore showing the fastest rate of development of disease that I've ever seen in the world. The picture that you're building here for us is quite a bleak one really because it's showing how much power and authority these corporations have over our consumption patterns. How does legislation play in here? Because your regular member of the public would trust that legislatory bodies are in control here. Is that the truth? That's naivety personified. Um, the big companies talking to people on their main boards they tell me that they can see a Prime Minister or, for example, the President of the European Union within two to three days. If I talk to somebody in public health and ask them when they might see them, it might take three to five years to engineer a single meeting. So we have completely misunderstood the sheer power politics of what's going on. But we were hearing earlier about a more collaborative effort with the corporations and health organisations like WHO. How, how can these two groups come together when the agenda appears on face value to be so different? I don't think that WHO uh, wants to collaborate uh, with the food industry. It needs to set the criteria uh, where the food industry, then if they comply, that's then going to be the bonus. But the biggest danger... The food industry has enormous influence, not only on the British government, but they essentially uh, often control the United States government until this new administration has come in. And I know and have detailed, uh, albeit first and second-hand accounts, of senior politicians at the highest level uh, in the US government actually directly speaking to the Director General of WHO and demanding that they change the policies. And when that was refused, they then um, uh, simply admitted that they were under intense pressure from these international soft drink and food companies. So what you're telling us here is legislation is, in fact, led by the rich and powerful corporate sector. It's only when we get the um, academic and uh, societal groups, the non-governmental organisations, demanding and making such a stink in the public domain that actually politicians then suddenly realise that their votes might depend upon their behaving reasonably. Otherwise, they're under the most enormous pressure. And I've seen and I've been involved with the British government in detail at the highest level. And I know just how it operates. Philip James. Meanwhile, I caught up with Derek Yach, who'd just been telling us all what his own company, PepsiCo, is doing to help and what he thinks food manufacturers in general can do. He was particularly keen on so-called public-private partnerships, getting companies and governments to tackle the problem together. What I think we're seeing happen within the large companies is saying there are very specific steps we can take to change the course of obesity. And these are really being um, sped up by a range of pressures from the investment community, from NGOs, and by an internal desire by many of the leading CEOs, including ours, to bring about change. So these include reformulating our products, um, where we have a greater investment in research and development focusing on 
products that would reduce the salt, sugar and fat content of our foods, re-looking at portion size and simultaneously looking at energy density. Changing that core to our products and re-looking at new products that we develop or acquire through the lens of their potential to address obesity or reduce it will bring about significant change. That's not enough. We recognize that the way we market has got to change. And we've now introduced a global uh, code on how we're going to market to kids or not market to kids worldwide, which is covering nine companies and 300 with combined uh, revenues of $350 billion. We're looking at how we can make labeling uh, more visible. And the core for that, in our mind, for the problem of obesity is calorie transparency. How can we work with governments and NGOs to allow consumers to understand what is a calorie? How many do they take in? How many do they need to burn to stay in energy balance? as well as the promotion of physical activity to ensure we have a true energy balance approach. We've been hearing that companies are extraordinarily talented at persuading people to buy and that also that they can price the products accordingly and attract people's eyes to buy certain products. What's been going wrong to actually cause this obesity epidemic that's happened, we've heard here today, only during the last 10 to 20 years? Well, I think that you certainly know that if we believe that the problem is one of people getting out of energy balance, um, people getting out of energy balance to the tune of 100 to 200 calories per capita today will lead them to be overweight and obese within five to 10 years. And that really comes from two ways, a collapse of physical activity or dramatic decline in physical activity or an increase in energy dense foods. In the energy dense categories in many parts of the world, these are actually not the convenience products like snacks, sodas and whatever. They actually are a dramatic increase in vegetable oils and other oils coming from a change in the consumption of products as they move from the farm to the city. We've heard quite a bit of suspicion among this audience about public-private partnerships with huge problems about conflicts of interest. You yourself have talked about the need for a firewall to prevent this, but could this really happen? I believe it can, and I think we have great examples from the areas of pharmaceutical interventions, whether it's river blindness in West Africa being a private-public partnership, whether it's the way we're tackling the need for access to vaccines worldwide, or the, the focus on micronutrients through the GAIN initiative. These are all private-public partnerships which in no way can be seen to be having a detrimental effect on the policy environment but are providing practical needed products to poor people around the world. We could be doing the same in the food arena. We also heard, for instance, that uh, at the top of the company where, where you are, indeed, there are noble initiatives being taken. But at the grassroots in small countries all over the world, these messages may not be getting through and the more sugary variety of drinks rather than the low-calorie variety are being actively promoted in favour of the healthier options. What do you make of that sort of fact? We only now have in place a chief marketing officer for the whole company as well as a chief scientific officer for the whole company. And that signals the intent of PepsiCo to ensure that global norms and standards when it comes to the kind of products we sell and the way we market them will increasingly be done in a uniform global way that meet um, expected international norms and standards with regard to health. So I think that while, yes, you may have a history of what's gone out first, you're likely to see a greater focus on the healthier options being pushed out into the market and encouraged, hopefully in time in preference to the products that may be associated with increased uh, diet, uh, calorie consumption. Some commentators here at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine were suggesting that 
companies may well be involved with initiatives to improve diet only to get a kind of feel-good factor, a halo effect it was, it was talked about here, um, so that people will think well of the company and then they can go on plying their evil trade. What do you make of that? I think those days are over. If you look at the investment bank analysts, JP Morgan, uh, the global reporting system of the United Nations, they are now looking for objective criteria that what we say we're doing, we're really doing. When we're talking about changing our product portfolio, they want to see it in terms of numbers and value. If we say we're going to not market to kids, they want proof that we're not marketing to kids. This is a very different ballpark to the pledges of the past that lent, went without careful evaluation. Do you believe that the corporate sector will indeed pay a lot more than just lip service to these sentiments? I believe they are. I can see the level of investment that our company and many of our other corporate uh, competitors are doing exactly in this area. I think it's an unstoppable process in much the same way as we saw this, the shift happening in companies adopting the environmental movement, uh, which I also believe is now unstoppable. We're starting to recognize that um, health and profitability can indeed coincide. Derek Yach. However, Philip James had reservations. Sarah Maxwell asked him first if he thought lessons could be learned from the way that tobacco and alcohol companies are now slowly being persuaded to change their marketing to take on board the health risks of their products. The food industry goes berserk if you parallel them with the alcohol and tobacco industry. But actually, the, um, the food industry is much more powerful than tobacco. Um, and they, in fact, have far more influence on um, leaders across the world than the tobacco companies. And I think that uh, the whole scheme of things and their defensive policies, when they come under attack, follow exactly the same routes as we see with tobacco. I'm not saying that they are identical with tobacco companies, but the way in which they behave are based on the same commercial criteria and the same capacity to try to block objections to progress being made in public health. Dr. Yak triggered some very passionate responses from the audience here today. Um, he was here representing PepsiCo. He painted a very rosy picture of, of the efforts that these corporations are making. What were some of your thoughts and reactions to that? Well, I mean, I think that Derek Yak uh, genuinely believes that he's changing or helping to change the whole of PepsiCo's approach. I mean, he's uh, operating, in a sense, as a very sophisticated marketeer, trying to convince us all that Pepsi is now moving into a new world and that is going to be in the forefront, actually is in the forefront, of changing its whole portfolio. Um, I, I would have felt much happier if I'd seen the portfolio of nutrients going out from PepsiCo globally and where it was going and how much had been changed for the better over the last two years. That's a tough one. But I've been on the website trying to actually work this out. Because you could, if you were miserable, say with all the sugar, salt and fat, you might predict how much disease and disability are being induced by people eating uh, these products, then everybody will object and say, well, it depends what else they eat. But actually, we now, we've known for years that these commodities should actually be eaten in astonishingly small amounts. And if you look at the evidence on salt, you need very, very little indeed. 
the whole of the Asian and African community was on practically zero sugar intakes and their fat intakes actually believe it or not were of the order of 10% of energy whereas in the West they think a low-fat diet is 30% of energy the obesity epidemic becomes evident as fat intakes move above 15% and all the Western people are saying they're on low-fat diets and actually the epidemic is now out of control. And these changes in um, cultural patterns and, and diet are a grain of sand in evolutionary terms to these cultures. We have now seen this going on literally in the last 15 to 20 years. Society has never seen such catastrophic pressures on the human race before. It is actually terrifying and one final question that I'd like to put to you. The worrying graphs that you were showing about trends in obesity, diabetes, all of them were curving up, whether we were looking at South America, Mediterranean diets, China, all across the world we're seeing all of these curves are pointing up. What is the future? What can our outlook be? It's, is it all bleak? There's unpublished data showing that when you have countries that really take major interventions like France and Switzerland, their obesity rates are not only stopping but beginning to drop. But they have very strict regulation, uh, very strict monitoring of what's been going on. And I think we need to follow their lead. Philip James talking to Sarah Maxwell in London. And the role of the London School of Hygiene in all of this is far from detached. So it was highly relevant to ask what the chairperson of the discussion, Andy Haynes, director of the London School, thought about these facts and opinions. Well, I think inevitably there's a lot of scepticism about the motives of the corporate sector because I think in the past there have been many uh, examples of where the corporate uh, sector has had adverse effects on public health by diluting uh, regulations around health, by blocking uh, initiatives to improve uh, nutrition. However, I do think that Derek Yak gave some compelling evidence that things, at least in some quarters, are beginning to shift. Now, whether that's going to be a long, sustained shift, whether it's really going to have a positive impact in the long term, I think we can't be sure. But I think it certainly made many people in the audience think that maybe there is some kind of dialogue to be had. I think it's pretty clear that most people in the audience would probably resist some kind of rather naive joining of forces or sort of coalition between, say, public health professionals or NGOs and the food industry, but some dialogue based on um, understanding of the different perspectives, um, it seems to me, was broadly accepted. Indeed, there was quite a bit of opposition among the audience to the whole concept of public private partnership, which uh, was thought by some people to be really uh, the, the wrong thing to do. Yes, I think inevitably many people feel that such partnerships are an essentially a stalking horse for the interest of the private sector and that the private sector, the bottom line, has to be profits. And I think that's, personally, I believe that is largely true, but uh, it is also true that private sector companies, certainly some of them, do see themselves as, as having a certain level of credibility which they don't want to lose and they see this as an important part of their general armamentarium, the way in which they market their image and brand. So to that extent there may be some kind of um, meeting of interest if that perception is correct. There may well be a meeting of interest that they have a considerable amount to lose if they can't deliver 
um, on this agenda. Now, Derek was suggesting that only the multinationals have the power and indeed the honesty and honour to get on with implementing things on the street and in the spirit of the word and not just in the letter because he thought that, for instance, third world governments may well indeed pass a law but it might be completely ineffective. What do you make of that? Well, that is one argument. I suppose against that one could also give instances of where some multinationals, and I won't name any names, but appear to have been kind of flouting uh, regulations around baby food marketing, for example. So, yes, there sounds some plausibility to what Derek Yak said, and it is certainly true that the multinationals have more to lose if they are found to be consciously undermining uh, regulations, and that if that gets back to some of their major markets that could um, affect uh, their image adversely. But I think we still need to be convinced that that will actually have a long-term impact on their behavior. Now, the other suggestion was that local uh, companies based in low-income countries are unlikely to have the same commitment. I I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. I mean, it seems to me that they you could make the same arguments that a company based in a low- or middle-income country could also lose reputationally if it was seen to be promoting foods that had adverse nutritional consequences. So I think it's, it's something we need to keep an eye on. Um, I think only the future will tell whether that's correct or not. Derek was indeed suggesting that processed foods have an enormous role to play in preventing undernutrition, indeed in keeping the entire burgeoning world population fed. Well, that, that is one approach. I mean, it, uh, and Derek Yak used the example of this GAIN initiative which seeks to reduce micronutrient deficiency. Of course, the problem is that malnutrition is not just a, a matter of absolute lack of food. It's often a lack of purchasing power to buy that nutritious food. And so another analysis would suggest that what we need to do is to tackle the fundamental underlying problems of market failure market failure being the fact that the people who most need adequate nutrition can least pay for it. And that's something it seems to me in the long term you can't tackle just by getting companies to produce more processed food um, to market that to poor people because they won't have the purchasing power to pay for it. So you need to deal to address the underlying market failure which underpins many of the malnutrition problems that we've got. Now you've been generous in hosting a conference about the corporate role in tackling the obesity epidemic. Are you convinced as chairperson of this very exciting conference that there is a corporate role and, and what it might be? Well I, I think we certainly would encourage a dialogue between the public health sector, the public health academia and the corporate sector. I think inevitably the corporate sector must have some role in advertising the nutrient content of their foods, for example. But that's got to be done in a way which is consistent. It can't be one company having one method of doing it, another company having another. We do need the corporate sector to get together and agree on ways in which they're going, to, for example, to demonstrate the nutrient profile of food. So I can see that there is some uh, role for the corporate sector to start working together on good practice. I think it's healthy, though, to have a certain distance between, say, the academic public health sector and the corporate sector. I don't think it's our role to be working closely together. I think there needs to be a spirit of constructive criticism governing the relationships between the two sectors. Andy Haynes, Director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And at this lively meeting, just one of the many outspoken speakers from the audience was Patty Rundle, 
Policy Director at the British organisation Baby Milk Action. I asked her if she was reassured by the idea Derek Yach put forward that you can have a so-called firewall in partnerships between food companies and public bodies that protects public health interests. I'm not at all convinced of it. We've done monitoring for so long. I mean, the industry always fights anything that, that is uh, actually critical of them in our experience, unless they have done a complete transformation and have morphed into something totally different, they are hugely powerful and that's what I was trying to, to get across to people, that that power just gets worse and gets more. So the more they partner up with organisations like WHO and UNICEF or whatever, they will get the power and, and nobody then challenges it. They have so much money that it's really difficult to get anybody to challenge it. Everybody who you thought would speak out suddenly doesn't because they want the money. And so from our perspective, I think the firewall is a nonsense. I think you could have proper governance of partnerships of sorts and make sure that the food industry and those that have something to sell are not in positions of power in terms of policy setting. So having heard the discussions here, are you more optimistic and, and, and what do you think might be the cautious, optimistic way forward? Am I more optimistic? I don't think I am more optimistic because I actually think there's so many factors coming in now that we didn't address, for example, the environmental climate change. What does that mean in terms of the food industry spreading its, you know, increasing its global outreach and, and transporting foods across the planet? This seemed to be what Derek was saying would be an excellent way to, to address malnutrition in the developing world. And I'm thinking, hold on a minute, what I call local food and indigenous foods and small farmers, you know, is totally something totally different to a big food company coming in and doing something and then getting a credit for it from the UN as if they're rescuing all these poor people. You know, that to me seems an absolute threat. And if we're not careful, that is the way it'll go. Patty Rundle from Cambridge, England, rounding up our report from the discussion about the role of big companies in the pandemic of global obesity. If you have any views on this, please send us an email. Our address, audionews at audiomedica.com. News just out in The Lancet from Oxford University and from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine concludes that economic turmoil, such as is now happening, can increase mortality rates. Martin McKee explained to me what they've learned from studying the former Soviet Union. In the period immediately after the fall of communism in the early 1990s, some countries experienced very large increases in death rates, whereas in others it was much smaller. And in fact, in some countries there were actual gains in life expectancy. We have been trying to understand why these countries differed in their experience of mortality. The Soviet Union has, of course, transitioned from one form of government to another. What were the actual changes taking place and how did you hypothesise these might affect health? There were a whole series of changes taking place. One was the privatisation of many of the large and medium enterprises, the factories and so on. Another was the liberalisation of prices. Uh, a third was the introduction in countries of varying degrees of democratic change. We tried to, I 
isolate from among these different factors the role of mass privatisation, by which we mean the sale of 25% or more of the large enterprises within two years uh, by the uh, use of vouchers or by transferring them to the existing management. Uh, So we were trying to understand whether that had an impact on health when we took account of all the other things that were going on. And what in fact happened? We found that countries that underwent mass privatisation, the way in which we defined it, uh, experienced an increase of about 13% in mortality among working age men. For what reason? Well, in this paper, we didn't look at the causes of death, although we have done a great deal of other work that does help us to understand that. And in particular, a paper that we published back in the late 1990s, looking at the regions within Russia. In that paper, we showed that it was the regions that experienced the fastest pace of change that had the highest increases in mortality, a finding that is entirely consistent with what we find in our current paper, which looks at a wider range of countries. And there we were able to look at the causes of death and the predominant factor explaining the difference between the well-performing ones and the badly performing ones were alcohol-related causes. Now, is that because of having more money, having less money, or because of changing work patterns, or what? There are a whole... Uh, range of factors that are involved. We were able to look in the current paper at the role of unemployment and certainly that did play some role in explaining what was happening, although not entirely. We also know that in the former Soviet Union particularly employers provided a very wide range of social and health services so people lost access to those. They lost access to social support But it is quite difficult to tease out the particular reasons why a particular individual died. Again, for that, we would be looking at the other research that we have conducted, which helps us to understand the trajectories that people travel. And again, the role of unemployment, of lack of social support, a key factor both in this study and in other work that we have done, and the access to easy, uh, easy access to cheap alcohol. So it's not just a matter of people being less well cared for then? Uh, No, it's not entirely, although the lack of social support is a a clear factor here. Uh, If people have a network of friends on which they can depend on, then uh, they are protected to some extent. We have known for some time that single men are particularly at risk in a period of rapid transition, uh, and those with low levels of education, with low levels of transferable skills, are also especially vulnerable. What are the bright signs in your data? Are there any? Well, we found that privatisation was associated with gains in life expectancy in some of the central European countries like Poland and uh, the Czech Republic. And that was because their privatisation was largely not done quite so rapidly. Uh, There were differences, but largely not as rapidly as in the former Soviet Union. And also it was typically accompanied by foreign direct investment with Western European companies coming in and buying up the companies and then investing in them rather than asset stripping them, as we saw in other countries. And those parts of Central Europe, uh, Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary and so on, were also the ones that had the strongest social networks through trade unions, through churches and through other uh, associations. But in general, I think if we take our work with a very large body of other research, we can see that very rapid change is generally not good for people's health. Martin McKee, Director of the European Centre for Health of Societies in Transition at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. 
In another Lancet publication, the idea that free trade automatically brings health benefits to a country's population has been questioned. At a news conference launching a Lancet series on trade and health, Richard Smith listed for Sarah Maxwell the factors, other than just the size of a country's growth, that make a difference to health. First of all, he said, there's the security and stability of any growth. Current news suggests that uh, open economies can be very unstable and, uh, and subject to the vicissitudes of the global financial markets and, and uh, trading relationships. Inequality in the distribution of that income, so we focus on the income of a country is increased by trade, but of course within that country there are winners and losers. Some uh, people uh, have an increase in income, increase in jobs, etc. Some sectors of the economy decline, and those of course are going to be the losers, and typically those are the unskilled and the poorest uh, members of the population. And finally issues about diet and nutrition, that increases in trade uh, generate changes in income, and trading changes in income engender changes in dietary behaviour and lifestyle behaviour generally, um, but also, of course, the progress of the companies involved in, in the production and distribution of food uh, is expanding through trade and influencing what is consumed in many countries. So you were talking about trade liberalisation there. What are the key messages coming out of this, though, at, at this stage, in terms of how can we look forward on this path? The paper uh, really focuses very much on uh, agriculture and food as a very concrete example of the impact of liberalisation on health because it's very clear that as markets have expanded um, uh, uh, companies have moved into, uh, into developing country markets. Tobacco is another very good example of course as we've got increased restrictions in many countries the tobacco companies are moving into different markets, markets with less restrictions on advertising for example of tobacco products and the same uh, situation is being witnessed with food that we have a move into countries with the with corporations they potentially have for example less restrictions on what can be advertised on marketing to children of particular products for example which we've uh, seen very recently we've become very concerned about in a country such as the UK other countries don't have such stringent regulations the World Trade Organization was founded on reducing tariffs to trade. If you reduce the tariffs to products which are potentially harmful or hazardous to health, then of course that creates a particular health problem uh, for your country. So one of the recommendations in there is that, that countries consider whether they wish to liberalize in certain areas like uh, food or uh, tobacco or indeed other harmful and hazardous uh, substances which may come across their borders. So what is your overall take-home message then coming out of this rather complex picture of the relationship between trade and health and um, how we're going to get to the pot of gold at the end of the, the rainbow? <laughs> the bottom line is that, the, that those uh, interested and involved in working in health need to get engaged and interested and involved in trade. Trade is not good and trade is not bad. Trade just is. And we can use it as a means to an end. Richard Smith, the London School's Professor of Health System Economics, talking to Sarah Maxwell. And Sarah also managed to catch a word about this from Kelly Lee, the other main speaker at the Lancet briefing. What effect could trade liberalisation have in today's challenging economic times?
I suppose a good example is how the broader impacts of trade liberalisation on household incomes, on poverty, on employment and so on, investment by governments. And these sort of big picture issues are going to impact on health and I suppose people see them as slightly removed because they are such big policy issues, but they invariably and in inevitably have a uh, trickle-down effect and an impact on individuals and their health. And then we track um, quite specific areas of health, whether it's you know food and nutrition, trade in um, health services and um, health-related services, trade of um, migration of health workers, uh, the drug uh, industry. Um, all these issues um, are... A are within the trade agenda, trade and health agenda. And I think all of these things is what we're trying to put through in the in the series. But what is new here? What really um, should we be flagging up to people out there? I suppose, you know, these issues have been around. We, we talked about the historical context of trade and health links. What we're trying to say and why we're saying it now is because we're facing such a crisis in the world trading system. We're having such a crisis in the global economy. And we have an opportunity to, to really improve the way that the um, global economy is managed. So our message really is that health people have to get within this debate, have to engage with it, and have an opportunity to influence the direction in which we uh, improve the management of the global economy. So, yes, some of the issues sound familiar, but it's, it's the timeliness, I think, you know, the sort of window of opportunity with, that we have to, to make a real difference and change the system. Kelly Lee of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine talking with Sarah Maxwell about The Lancet's new series on trade and health, which the authors admit is a complex relationship, but one which is, sadly, dominated by trade rather than health. And another Lancet contribution from Martin McKee found evidence of a reciprocal relationship between a country's health system and its wealth. But I first asked Martin about his comment written up in the British Medical Journal on what the new American president's policies are likely to bring to the world in terms of health. We're very optimistic. It will have implications, we feel, in a number of areas. Uh, internationally, the uh, Bush administration had policies on reproductive health that were not always helpful, in particular the global gag rule, which restricted funding to organisations that were seen to provide support for abortion and the promotion of abstinence-only policies that were largely ineffective. Those will clearly go. Uh, we will see an increase in international development assistance by the United States. And uh, we will also see a rejection of the policies pursued under the previous administration that distorted scientific evidence. A number of American commentators commented on the politi politicization of science under the Bush administration, the uh, distortion of reports, the censoring of uh, uh, inconvenient findings. Uh, that will be a change. Now, uh, President Obama is indeed head of the leading country that's spearheading the world's economy, well, one might argue that China is also and many other countries, but America is a very leading actor. And you've just published in The Lancet about health systems and how wealth, which of course is crucial to the American economy, uh, is interrelated with health systems. Can you tell me about this? This was in Estonia. 
Well, we were uh, reporting in The Lancet this week uh, a paper based on work that we did for a ministerial conference held earlier in 2008 in Tallinn, Estonia, where 50, over 50 ministers from across Europe were brought together by the World Health Organization. We were looking at the triangular relationship between health systems, health and wealth. We already know that people who have more resources and countries that have more resources are healthier. They can make healthier choices, for example, by providing clean running water, nutritious food, uh, exercise facilities and, and so on and so forth. But we've also been doing a great deal of work looking at the opposite relationship, showing that people that are healthier are more productive and they're more likely to remain in the workforce. So there is therefore a positive reason for promoting wealth. It actually does promote health and and then that feeds back. We're looking for a virtuous circle in which both feed off each other. But we also looked at the role of health systems. For example, we uh, often get concerned about the future sustainability of healthcare. Will we be be able to afford it in the future with an aging population? And there is good evidence that we can control to a substantial extent the growth in healthcare expenditure by preventing disease. Clearly, if no one was ill and if they simply dropped dead at the age of 100 or something like that, we would need very little healthcare. We will never get to that ideal, but we certainly can do a lot to reduce the disability that people suffer by preventing the onset of premature disease. We can also look at the contribution of healthcare to the economy. For example, the way in which investment in health facilities in regions that have undergone deindustrialization uh, can be a stimulus to economic growth. These are noble thoughts, but in the conference in Estonia, you met with 50 health ministers from 50 different countries. What were the resolutions and conclusions that you reached about practically what to do to implement some of these improvements? The ministers signed a document which is now known as the Tallinn Charter, and it's important to remember that this document was drawn up and signed before the current global financial crisis, so it really was remarkably forward-looking. And this commits them to investment in health systems as a means of promoting economic growth, a view that is entirely consistent with that of the European Union through its Lisbon agenda, which seeks to make the European Union the most competitive economy in the world. But what sorts of things need to be done at the practical level to achieve all of this? Well, these things are already being done. And in fact, quite a few countries have had debates between their health ministries and their finance ministries, looking at ways in which the health sector can contribute to, first of all, shielding people from the current global financial turmoil, but also as a means of promoting long-term investment in their population. There is really no doubt among finance ministries that if they want sustainable long-term growth, they should invest in in capital, in facilities, in internet highways, in airports, in, in railways, at transport infrastructure and so on. And there's also no dispute that they should invest in the education of their people. We are simply adding to that by pointing out the need to invest in the health of their population. There's no point in having up state-of-the-art uh, factories uh, with excellent communications, highly educated people if they drop dead at the age of 40. More wise words there from Martin McKee, winding up this edition of Audio News. Our programme comes to you from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and we'll be happy to get your comments and suggestions. So do please email us at audionews at audiomedica.com. I'll be back soon with more, so until next time, from me, Peter Goodwin, goodbye.